This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So if we're going to ask what is truth, one thing we might do is focus on what it's not for just a bit. And before doing that, we might even just focus on the question whether there is truth at all. After all, if there's no truth at all, it's a shame to spend 45 minutes thinking about what truth is. So to the first, consider the claim, there is no truth. That's one of the first lines on your handout and it's underlined there on your handout. There is no truth. Now, uh, those quick with your logic, you might be seeing something is problematic with asserting the claim, there is no truth. And the basic issue is something that philosophers have called self-referential incoherence. Here's the idea. Take a proposition like there is no truth. Now that proposition would falsify itself. It's a counterexample to itself. If it were true, it would immediately show itself to be false. So it's self-referentially incoherent. It's incoherent because it itself is a counterexample to it. Like similarly, if I say to you, no sentence in English is longer than three words, that sentence itself, if true, would be a counterexample to it. You see what I mean? So some propositions have the unfortunate quality of being such that were they true, they would falsify themselves. It's like, um, you know how maybe your dad used to say, don't smoke cigarettes, and then you caught him smoking a cigarette while walking the dog, and he'd say, hey, man, you're a hypocrite. You say, don't do it, and here you are doing it. Maybe your life's not like my life. But in any case, it, that there is an example of a person being a hypocrite. Here, it's an example of a statement or assertion being hypocrite-like. It falsifies itself. It says, don't do this, and there it is doing it. It says there's no truth, and there it is presented as if it were a truth. So the claim, there is no truth, I think is a dead end. If you posited it, I guess it wouldn't posit it as true, that'd be silly to do. But if you posited it, it would immediately show it's wrong. What to do next then? Well, if there is some truth, we can ask, what determines or settles that truth? In virtue of what is something true? This is the same sort of question you ask about morality. You might say, okay, I get it. There are some things that are morally wrong. Now let's ask, in virtue of what is it morally wrong to, to lie to a trusted friend? Or is it morally wrong to commit adultery? Or take your pick, whatever you think is morally wrong, put it in there. And here we have a couple different ways people often point to as being a potential way of grounding morality that you can also apply to grounding truth. And we can ask about either way. So consider the first there. What if we said that, yeah, there is some truth and it's settled or determined by means of belief or opinion? And maybe it's your own personal belief, so I have my truth and you have your truth. Or maybe it's a communal belief, like my community thinks thus and such is true. And so for me, thus and such is true. And your community thinks thus and such is false. So for you, thus and such is false. Well, concerning the first, concerning truth being determined or settled by belief alone. Consider what would follow from that. Again, we can draw an analogy to morality. If moral truths were settled just by belief or opinion, then there'd be some odious responses. That is to say, there'd be some odious entailments. For instance, if morality were determined just by the belief of a majority of people in a community, then 
some really odious racial beliefs would turn out to be true for them. So maybe race-based slavery is right and just. That proposition was believed by a preponderance of people in one society or another. And in virtue of that, it'd be true for them that race-based slavery is right and just. And if you think, no, that can't be, it's not, it's not right and just anywhere, no matter where you're standing or when you're standing, then belief or opinion alone can't settle the moral question. But of course, if it can't settle the moral question, it can't settle the truth question either, because the proposition, race-based slavery is right and just, can't be true no matter what period, no matter where you're standing, no matter how many of your compatriots affirm it. So belief itself isn't going to be sufficient for determining what the truth is in all cases. Yeah, so uh, one of you says contradictory opinions are equally true. And I think that's, I should have looked at that first. That's the sort of claim I was making just now in my, in my comments. You know, one society believes P, the other believes not P. One believes the earth is flat, the other believes the earth is round. And they both end up being true on this view. But of course, the earth isn't both flat and round, and it couldn't be. And someone else says, on a purely pragmatic level, it seems a lot of societies do operate on the basis of truth being collective belief. I think that's probably right. On a purely pragmatic level, if you want to like pass laws and such, you don't have to first prove your first, uh, your first beliefs are true, like your belief about what justice is is true. Instead, you just work with what people bring to the table and try to galvanize some sort of practical decision there. So I think that's right. How about the next one? How about power? What do we think? Can power alone settle or determine truth? Here again, it seems tricky to think so. So consider for a moment something, again, from morality. Uh, has anybody heard the phrase, might makes right, before? It's an old adage, and it basically means that uh, whatever the powerful had the capacity to do, that is a thing that's morally permissible to do. Their power or their might makes the action permissible or right. Now, again, we're not talking about morality here. We're talking about truth in general. But the same reasons you think might makes right isn't very good ethics also apply here. So might alone isn't going to make it the case that the earth is flat. If the flat earthers throw a coup, and they put to death almost everybody who believes the earth is round so that they're the majority. Their power alone isn't going to make it the case that the earth is flat. And substitute in whatever you want for flat earthers, or Nazis or whoever. If they, if they had won, their power alone wouldn't make it the case that it's true that insert whatever there. So power alone is not going to do it either. And how about stipulation or definition? Now here, like with the other ones, there is some truth to the matter. There is some truth here. Stipulation is important for understanding what things are true or false. I mean, we have to stipulate what a term means to properly apply it to things like blue of my eyes or gray of my beard. So we do need some stipulation in our understanding of truth. But the thing is, truth, stipulation alone won't get you to truth. So I'm sitting right now. That's the bodily position I'm in. But it's not true by definition that Dr. Paul is sitting. Because 10 minutes ago before we, or 20 minutes ago before we started, I was standing. So stipulation alone isn't going to get you there either. And finally, what about science? Can science alone be that through which, uh, that by which things are true? Does science determine truth? 
And here I think we get to another sort of self-referentially incoherent pickle. So does science alone determine what's true? Well, if it did, note, it would have to determine science alone determines what's true because that's presented as a truth. And if it's true, it's determined by science on this view. But science alone can't show that science is the only way to get to truth. I mean, suppose that the uh, National Endowment for the Sciences gave you a billion dollars, give you 70 billion, I don't know. I don't know what kind of money universities have anymore, but give you a lot of money. And they said, you do what you want. All you gotta do is prove to us using the scientific method that the only way to come to truth is through science. Deal? And FSU president says, yes, yes, deal, say deal, say deal. And you say, deal. And they say, okay, build whatever you want to. Well, you buy all the graduated cylinders you want, all the particle accelerators you need, all the Bunsen burners your heart can you know, be filled with, and all that stuff and more isn't going to be able to show through science alone, through empirical observation and such. It's not going to be able to show that science is the only means to ascertain truth. And so the very claim, science is the only way to ascertain truth, or science determines truth, is self-referentially incoherent. It falsifies itself. Science doesn't show that claim to be true. So what do we see here? Well, there's a moral here, and the moral is this, that there is some truth, and it's not determined solely by opinion or power or definition or science. So we can ask ourselves, given that there is some truth, how ought we to understand it? And there's a couple of different ways of understanding it. But to see them, it's useful, I think, to have some examples of, of truth in the wild. That is to say, how we use true or truth or truly out there outside the philosophical, philosophical classroom, outside the theological discussion, just in the world. So here are some examples of ways of using the word true. The bottom of uh, page one of your handout. Oh, and I see that Dan shared it again uh, in, the, in the chat. Thanks for doing that, Dan. So we have this claim, the earth rotates around the sun is true. That's the way we use the word true. And we have another, uh, I might say to you, John, but not Judas is a true friend. And they're true again is being used in a certain way, uh, but a different way. Or I might say to you, I have to true my bicycle wheel. Has anybody ever heard of truing a bicycle wheel? I didn't know what it meant for... Uh, and I heard it in the bike shop when I was getting my, my bike uh, repaired. Uh, anybody know what it is to true a bicycle wheel? Well, think about it. Maybe Google it. I'll, uh, we'll come back to it in a bit. But that's a third example. And a fourth is a claim like, I am truly impressed. Like, I'm impressed with how the philosophical folks are, are working to figure things out and, and help me with this. Yeah, to make it a perfect circle. Good job, Bruce. The idea is this. When you true a bicycle tire... You know, you take the spokes and you tighten or loosen them such that you get a, a, as close to a perfect circle as you can get. So you don't have like a warbly bike uh, tire. Here then are four examples. And let's talk about the uh, different ways of understanding the word true in them. So look at the first, truth as authenticity. So when we say something is true, we might mean it's really or authentically that way. When I say true friend, I mean like a real friend, not a phony. When I say I'm truly impressed, I mean like actually or genuinely impressed. So something is true in this sense when it, the thing, can be genuinely and properly understood. 
under the concept in question. So John is properly and genuinely understood as being a friend. The concept friend applies to John and he isn't faking his friendship. Or I am properly and genuinely understood as being impressed. The concept impressed really applies to me. I'm not faking it or insincere. That's one way of using the word true. And you see like something like fool's gold as opposed to true gold. Fool's gold looks like it is but isn't gold. And true gold, of course, looks like and is gold. So that's one understanding of truth. Truth as authenticity. But there's others as well. More broadly than truth as authenticity. More broadly than being understood as a real or true friend or a real or truly impressed person. Things can be understandable in some way or other. More generally, just understandable in some way or other. So when something is understandable or graspable in some way or other, it is called transcendentally true. That's the Thomistic lingo for that. And why is it called transcendental? Well, here's the idea. A transcendental for the medievals, a transcendental is a concept that's applicable to anything that exists, no matter what sort of thing it is, no matter what ontological category it falls into. The term is apt of that thing. So some terms we know of, like, you know, being a toddler only applies to certain things, never a plant, you know, never a computer. Um, but the word true on this understanding applies to all things, no matter what period. So, for instance, being is a transcendental, since anything that exists, no matter what, no matter how it exists, has being or it is. And true, in this sense, is a transcendental, since anything that exists, no matter how it exists, could be understood in some way or other. That's all it takes. It's a low bar, then, to be transcendentally true, just able to be understood in some way or other. Well, we get some insights here. True, in both the authenticity sense and in the transcendental sense, applies to a thing, when the thing is in conformity with thought. So the friend is a true friend when he's in conformity with the concept of friend. A more common usage, though, of the term true goes the other way. It applies to our thoughts when they're in conformity with things. And that notion, a propositional or logical truth, is what we'll turn to now. So what about logical or propositional truth? On the subject of logical truth, the truth of statements or assertions, Thomas Aquinas follows the thought of Aristotle. Aquinas writes in his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics the following, quote, this is on your handout, quote, the definition of the true and the false, here it comes. Truth exists when one says of what is, or sorry, when one says of what is, is, or that what is not, is not. I think I garbled it. Let me try it one more time. Give me one more chance, coach. I'll get it, I swear. Truth exists when one says that what is, is. Nailed it. Or that what is not, is not. But falsity exists when one says of what is, that it is not. Or that what is not, is. Uh, it's lots of... The word is, the word not, and the what and that in there. So I got it spelt out a bit more clearly underneath. So the two ways for something to be true, according to Aquinas, here following Aristotle. 
something is true when it says of what is that it is. So for instance, I say dogs exist, and that says of what is that it is. Or maybe of some particular dog, I say Fido is warm-blooded. And there I'm saying of what is that dog that it is. I'm saying of that warm-blooded dog that it is a warm-blooded dog. And so it's true. Or I could say of what's not that it's not. So if I say there are no dodo birds, there I'm saying of what's not that it's not, because there aren't in fact any dodo birds so far as we know. If there were, if there were like a cave just full of dodo birds, I'd have to change the example. But the concept, <laughs> yeah, right. We can hope. We can hope that there is. But the the concept though of uh, saying of what is not that is not remains the same even if it's a bad example. Or we might say Fido is not scaled. Here again, it's saying of what's not a scaled Fido, that it's not. Or something is false on the other hand, when it says of what is that it's not. So I might say there are no dogs and that's false. And it's false because it's saying of what is that it's not. Or again, in particular, I might say Fido is not warm-blooded. And if I say that, I'm saying again of something that is a warm-blooded Fido, that it's not. And finally, the fourth way, a second way of being false, you might say of what is not that it is. So I might say there are dodo birds. There I'm saying of something that doesn't exist that it does. I'm saying of what is not that it is. Or again, from the universal to the particular, you might say Fido is scaled. And there I'm saying uh, that something exists that doesn't in fact exist a scaled Fido. So those are the four different ways Aquinas is talking about here in this conception of truth, again, propositional truth. And in those, in those four ways, we see it's just two different distinctions put together, you know, four different ways, hashtag four different ways. And it goes like this. The first distinction is whether something is or is not. And that's a question of whether reality is a certain way or not. No matter what you think about it, whether there's a dog out there, whether Fido is warm-blooded, whether there are dodo birds. That's a question about reality and if reality is a certain way. But the second distinction that's at work here is saying that something is or saying that something is not. So there, that's about what the intellect thinks. You know, if it's a person thinking there are no dodo birds, it's about how reality is represented. It's an intellectual thing, not like a out there in the world thing. So these two distinctions come together and that's how you get those four different understandings, two of which are true and two of which are false. So then we can ask, or we can look to what Aquinas writes on the next page. Aquinas says, truth is defined as the conformity between the intellect and reality. So it's the conformity between the intellect and reality. And note that this conformity, as we've seen, can go two different ways. You can look at it from the side of the intellect or the thought or the proposition, and you can look at it from the side of the reality or the things or the stuff out there. And if you look at that relation between the thought and the world from the thought side, so to speak, if you look at it from the thought side, you're asking about propositional or logical truth. You're asking whether that thought corresponds to that thing in the world. 
And if you look at it the other way, if you're looking at a feature that a thing has, now we're talking about how the thing is, a feature the thing has when it's conformable with thought. In general, you have what's called transcendental truth. It's generally conformable to thought. It's a thing that could be known under some concept or other. That's transcendental truth. Or again, you might be talking about the thing, again itself, and asking about some specific concept, not asking about whether it can be known at all, but asking, can it be known or believed or thought of as a true friend or a truly impressed person? And there, the conformity of a specific concept like friend or impressed, it's true in the, what I've called the truth as authenticity sense. It's authentically that type of thing. So truth as authenticity is more narrow than transcendental. They're both set of the thing, like the, this yellow, this, well, actually this, this is true gold. So I was told, <laughs> I think it's true gold. This is true gold. Uh, and it's transcendentally true because it's understandable under a certain concept, namely gold. It's understandable under the concept of ring. Lots of other concepts too, if we thought about it. So you can look at thought and world and look at the interrelation between the two, either looking primarily from the thought side, does the proposition correspond to reality? Or looking from the thing side, is this thing knowable? Is it knowable under a certain concept? In both cases, I guess in all three cases, you're looking at the interconnection between thoughts or statements or assertions and how the world is to each other. So now if we circle back, remember the first questions I asked were, hey, is there truth at all? And if there is, what settles or determines it? And I left it on a cliffhanger, so to speak. I said, well, it's not these four things. It's not belief or opinion. It's not power. It's not stipulation. It's not science alone. Those four things aren't what do the determining or settling of truth. So what does do the determining or settling of truth? Now we can look forward and say, okay, what's Aquinas say? And for Aquinas, as you probably saw already in those four different ways of thinking about the true and the false, for Aquinas, what settles or determines the truth is conformity of the intellect to reality. So he says there the quote, truth, which is in the soul, but caused by things, does not depend on what one thinks, but on the existence of things. For it is because a thing is or is not that a statement is said to be true or false. It's because that thing out there is, or it's because there's nothing out there like that thing. It's because Fido out there is a certain way that the proposition Fido is warm-blooded is true. How it is in the world determines or settles whether the proposition is a truth or a falsehood. And it goes both ways. It works for existing things like Fido, and it works for the lack or dearth or non-existence of things too. There are no dodo birds is true because in anywhere out there, there aren't any such things as dodo birds. The important thing or one important thing to see here is that Aquinas isn't saying, like Aristotle wasn't saying, that there's something really existing, like a, a lack of dodo birds. I don't have a dodo bird in my office here. It's not that he's saying there's something that exists. It's the lack of dodo birds in Dr. Paul's office. That thing now exists. And if one of you came here and shoved a dodo bird in my office, I'd be pretty surprised. 
But if one of you made it here from Florida and did it, just to pull a joke on me, found a dodo bird. <laughs> if you did it, then um, it wouldn't. It would be true, and be true because it's conforming to how the world is there. Okay, so that's what determines the truth for Aquinas. It's how the world is. So it's a correspondence theory. Okay, I'd like now in the last about 10 minutes or so left for the discussion. That, that is for my talk portion. And before you guys ask me questions, I had these last questions for you guys I wanted to ask you. Let's circle back to what I said about truing. So here's a question for you guys. Why does truing a bicycle tire make sense? Why does the word truing make sense, given what we know about the various meanings of truth that we discussed? You see what I mean? Like, why would we call it truing instead of straightening or something? Circling. It, yeah, go ahead. Would, would it be because um, we know that there's an efficiency in regard to something being circular, and that's like the intended use and form that it's trying to take? So the closer you get to it being perfectly a circle, the closer you get to the ideal version or truth that it could be? Yeah, so you're, you're closing in on the efficient or ideal version. It may be ideal because most efficient. Yeah, but why would we call that truing then instead of making it more ideal or whatever, whatever other term, more, making it more efficient? Why is true the word to use? And let's see, that while, we were, while you and I were talking, Nicholas, there were some more in the comments as well. So one of you says, because you can form a circle, sorry, you can form a bicycle wheel to the definition of a circle. And then Bill says, because it's logical. Uh, look at the, the uh, comment there from Kevin. What we're doing is we're conforming a bicycle wheel to the definition of a circle. If you think about the ways we've defined truth, and that's a sort of truth as authenticity move there. You've got the bicycle wheel itself, and you're trying to conform it, you're trying to mold it into the ideal, as, uh, as Nicholas had told us, the ideal form. It's like if you have a friend in, and he's kind of lousy, but you don't want to give up on him, you might try to work to mold him into a better friend. Or if that seems unduly paternalistic to try to mold another human like that. Think of a child. You might have a child who's selfish, and here you can't just give up on your child, or at least you shouldn't. So there what you try to do is try to mold your child into someone a bit less selfish. So there you have an idea of what you want, and you're trying to shape reality to conform with that idea. Here, you have an idea of what you want in a tire, and you're trying to shape reality, in particular, the tire part of reality, to be more in conformity with it. Good, so it's, it's a truth as authenticity understanding of true there. And I like that they've made it a verb to, you know, truing a bicycle tire, bring it into conformity with the concept of a wheel. Secondly, I started this talk with a, a scripture quote, remember Pilate asks, what is truth of Aquinas, uh, not of Aquinas. You know, I do that more often than you might think. I switch of Aquinas and Christ. I wonder what that means about me. But uh, says he asks it of Christ. Well, another thing from the same gospel that you find is Jesus says the following. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're probably familiar with that phrase. It's a pretty common one. It's not quite as common as John 3.16. I don't know if they make, you know, like John 16.4 signs that hold up at football games. 
but it's a pretty common phrase. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What do you guys think he means there by truth when he says he is the truth? I think of it like this. We take the bike tire and we true it by conforming it, by changing it to be more in line with an exemplar. And the exemplar we have in mind here with the bike tire is like a circle. That's what we really want is something in a circular shape, not warbly because it bumps when it goes down the road or it's warped. And so likewise, when Christ says that he's the truth, he might equally well be saying he's the exemplar. He's the thing to mold your life to in order to be, um, well, not an efficient tire, but to be a good human, mold your life to Christ. That could be the claim he's making there. If it is, then his claim to be the truth is a claim concerning uh, truth as authenticity. Okay, and the final one. Aquinas asks at one point, he asks the following, he, he says, if, this is the third question on your handout, if by an impossible supposition, intellect did not exist and things did continue to exist, would there still be truth? Now, what do you guys think he should say, given what we've said about his understanding of truth? If you, if you took the world and excised all the minds, you just snuffed them out of existence somehow, such that all the mental stuff stops, but all the things stuff, you know, the, I guess the book, the stones, the dirt, they all stick around. If you think that dogs don't have mental states, they're still dogs. If you think they do, if you think worms don't have mental states, they're still worms. You get the idea. The ocean is there, nothing thinking about the ocean. What do you think if by that impossible supposition, he, uh, sidebar, he thinks it's impossible because he thinks God is necessary and he can't snuff God out. So even if he snuffed out all created minds, he'd still have the divine mind to deal with. Well, it's a tricky one. Yeah, it is a, it's a tree falling in the forest type of question, someone says. Yeah, and so uh, another says, the possibility of truth exists, but it takes us to recognize it. Ooh, look at these, it's an avalanche of comments. Good, guys. Another says, there would be being, but not truth, except in the divine mind. Or Bruce says, yes, still truth, because reality exists, regardless of intellectual knowledge. And finally, one says, there would just be matter in flux. Yeah, so we have some disagreement here. Some people saying, no, there wouldn't be truth, but the possibility of truth. Some saying, yeah, there still be truth, but only the divine mind. Some saying, yeah, because reality still exists. Good. For Aquinas, I don't know if you can see it super well in this handout. Maybe if you downloaded the handout, you'd see that after, uh, after the last parenthesis in that last question, after the last paren, I have some words in white font, which give the rest of the Aquinas quotation there. Uh, but here's what he goes on to say. He says, if by an impossible supposition, intellect did not exist and things did continue to exist, dot, 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 then the essentials of truth would in no way remain. So the, what's needful for truth wouldn't be there. And the idea is this, why wouldn't the essentials for truth be there? Because remember, truth is a relation between two relata. It's a relation between thought or a statement or assertion and reality. And if you plot out a thought, 
you don't have the thing to be related to anymore. You still got this stuff. If there were a thinker, it would know, but no thinkers. So on Aquinas's view, if you got rid of the minds, you get rid of truth. You wouldn't get rid of how the world is. If there were four rocks in the chair before the minds were all snuffed out, there'd still be four rocks in the chair, but there'd be no proposition there are four rocks in the chair because such a thing is only formed by an intellect according to Aquinas. So, okay. Uh, with that said, thanks, and let's get to questions. Hey, thanks a lot for your talk. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the last point about if minds didn't exist, I mean, would transcendental truth still exist? Because you'd still have things that would exist, they would have being, and it seems like maybe intrinsically they're understandable even if there are no understanders. So would it just be like, you know, logical truth wouldn't exist, but uh, transcendental truth would still exist? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep, good, good catch. I should have put Thanks. propositional or logical in there. Yeah. Appreciate it. Hello. <clears throat> uh, I had a, so throughout the presentation, uh, of course, like we all know Aquinas is a Catholic, but I'm wondering if there's like some sort of degree of autonomy that we have as thinkers in regards to God. Like are, it, it seems like we aren't, in our reasoning, we aren't really dependent on the divine being, but we can sort of reason from reality uh, to God. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So um, even for Aquinas, he thought that uh, human intellects, even though darkened by sin, he, he believed in like a literal fall, which led to intellectual darkening by humans. But even for Aquinas, he thought you can come to real knowledge of, of truth um, outside of divine infusion, just by, um, just by the powers of your intellect. Yeah, that's right to me. Thank you. Um, I actually have, I wrote down a few objections. Not all of them are necessarily things that I believe, but just thoughts that I had throughout the presentation. Um, so I guess I'll do them like one at a time, obviously to let people ask their questions in between. Um, so the first I have, I haven't thought about correspondence theory of truth in a long time. Um, the first objection, which I, I'm not going to say if I believe it or not, is going to come from nominalism. So my first question here is going to be for everyone, for whoever doesn't know nominalism or is unfamiliar with it, it's the idea that the, the concept of like abstract categories, like categories of things is very like philosophically problematic and difficult to define. So using some of the examples from the presentation. So let's say I have, you know, Fido over here and I have Spot over here. And both of them are dogs. So it's true that they're dogs in nature of the fact that they are both dogs. But my question is like, and from nominalism, is like what makes it the case that they are actually dogs? Like what makes these two things of a kind, such as the proposition, Spot is a dog is true. So like, does this correspondence theory rely on some kind of like metaphysical divine categories such that when I refer to something as an abstract category, like what, what makes that category the case? Cause it would seem like those categories are products of like human convention, that humans are the one who are creating these categories. And thus to say that spot is a dog is only true insofar as, well, that's cause that's what we call them. We call these creatures dogs, but there's not anything that actually makes it true by like definition, like that that is actually a dog, some kind of like transcendental truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So I don't think that a correspondence. Pardon? Oh, I thought I heard somebody say something to me. Uh, I don't think that a correspondence theory of truth requires realism about uh, either platonic entities or about um, what you might call accidents or inhering tropes or basically that it doesn't require adherence to some existing mind independent shareable instantiable entity like courage itself and i think it also doesn't require you to believe in um, individual accidental features that people have like my sitting accident as distinct from dr paul or my sitting feature i think there are other good reasons to believe in such features but i think the correspondence theory of truth just by itself doesn't get you to having that so i think the nominalist uh, could be happy with the correspondence theory of truth, as I've as I've spelt it out here. The nominalist would want to, to deny lots of claims, like um, if I said the platonic form of courage is a platonic form, that would be a claim that has no correspondent, because you know it's like saying the dodo bird is yellow, well there isn't one, so the platonic form of courage isn't anything, if on the nominalist view. So he'd say that's false, but he wouldn't think it's false because the correspondence theory is false. You think it's false because of his underlying metaphysics of, of properties or features. So I've got this this question, right? So um, I understand why how we can talk about things that don't exist in a sense if we say that they don't exist. So like dodo birds like don't exist, and what what's really what we're talking about or corresponding to there is the reality of everything that does exist, and including that lack of dodo birds. Um, but like to, to get like a little bit more specific, what if I was to say, or like, I'd like to think that it's true that say Sherlock Holmes is a detective, um, but Sherlock Holmes doesn't exist. So is there any room in, in this correspondence theory to say that something like Sherlock Holmes is a detective is true? Or can we not even make that claim simply because there's no actual correspondent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, um... There were two bits to it that I saw. Let me say something about a first bit and then something about fiction as a second bit. To the first bit, um, I don't think it's the case that every truth requires some existing correspondent to be true. That claim, or something a lot like that claim, often goes by the label truthmaker maximalism, where any proposition needs something which is a, some existing entity, which is a truthmaker for the claim, in virtue of which the claim is true. I don't think that's true. So like a claim like there are no dodo birds, I don't think you need a thing out there, the, the lack or dearth of dodo birds as an existing entity to make it true. But I like that you raised fiction because um, you might wonder if there's a middle ground, like there's no Sherlock Holmes, so to speak, out there existing in the wild. You won't run into him on the street or in a, a drug house, which is I think sometimes where he spent his time in between stories. You, you won't find Sherlock Holmes out there in the wild. But, at least for people like Aquinas, there is a sense in which there are truths about Sherlock Holmes. And so the question is, well, wait a second, how do you get this positive sort of truth about Sherlock Holmes when there isn't one of those things out there? And for the medievals generally, but Aquinas in particular, he had the idea that there were things that were uh, mental objects. So it's, it's a real entity that exists in the intellect of the creator. So if you write a song in your mind before you put the song to paper, before you play it, there's a real existing mental entity there. And uh, the same with Sherlock Holmes. It's a really existing mental entity in the minds of the agents who think about him. 
So there is a correspondent there. And questions arise about how you can get truths about those things. Like the, the mental entity I have isn't a detective, like a real detective, you know? In the story, he's a detective. So there are truths in fiction about, and there are truths about the fiction. And some people who've written really neat things on this include people like David Lewis has some neat metaphysical work on truths of fiction. And I think uh, Peter Van Inwagen does too. And they have different sorts of views, but I like, I like the lay of the land of those two thinkers concerning the views. So I'd, I'd point you toward those guys for more on the metaphysics of truth and fiction. Oh, one just popped in. Yeah, we've actually got one here from Mariana. Um, please elaborate on the fact that God is truth in the context of this lecture. How does our mind play into St. Thomas Aquinas' claim that if we got rid of our minds, we get rid of truth? Mm -hmm. Yep, good. I see two things going on there. Uh, one, the fact that God is truth and how it plays into the lecture. Well, I was thinking about it like this. When Christ says, I am the truth, it's kind of a strange image. Like when he says, I am the vine, I can understand what that means because on, the, on the theology, you have to be grafted into Christ. You have to be like become part of Christ in some way. And I can see what he means when he says he's a shepherd because, you know, he's shepherding his flock. But what does it mean when he says he is the truth? That's not quite like being a shepherd. It's more like an abstract thing. And so I wondered, you know, what does this mean here? How does the metaphor get played out? And I think it does by saying that he's truth in the conformity sense, in the truth as authenticity sense. So he's the thing to be conformed to by humans. You conform a tire to your ideal of a circle. You conform, and to make it a good tire, you conform your idea of a human to Christ to make it a good human. I'm sorry, I didn't mean you conform your ideal of a human. You conform the human to Christ to make the human a good human is the idea. So it's the same sort of move in the tire case and in the Christ case. You can call them both truing or making true in this respect. To the second bit, yeah, so our minds play into the claim that if you got rid of our minds, you get rid of truth in the following way. Truth, according to Aquinas, is a relation between two sorts of things, the mind or the thought of the mind and the world, or the things in the world, or how the world is, those two. And so to have a relation there, you need both relata, both things to exist. Like you can't be two feet to the left of something if the thing isn't at all. And so likewise, you can't have truth if one of the two things needful for truth isn't at all. And so that's the idea. That's how um, getting rid of our minds gets rid of truth, because truth requires both to get rid of one. You can no longer have the relation anymore. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Renee, I want to let you give your question, but I want to, before we get too far away from my follow-up to my nominalism point, um, so I guess like to maybe make the point in a different way. So like, I could say it's the case that Kermit the Frog is green, and I could say it's the case that grass is green, right? And technically both of those statements would be true insofar as we would define it, right? Like I look at the grass, clearly it appears to be green. I look at this puppet, it appears to be green. Um, I guess, I'm trying to think of how to word this, but like both of those things are, it is true that both of those things are green only insofar as they both fall under the like umbrella concept of what we conceive in the mind as greenness. 
So I, th- I can't recall if it was green or maybe it was blue, but I know that like there's some controversy about in ancient Greece that like some of their text doesn't include, I think it's the color blue, that they never use the word blue in their text because like they hadn't made the mental category of that color. Like they didn't distinguish blue from green. It was just the sky is a different shade of green. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seems like the correspondence theory, it relies on the correspondence between reality and the concepts that we hold. But again, are these concepts just conventions that humans create? Like when we slap labels on things, right? So like what is green is just the set of all things that we call green. But it's not like an actual correspondence between like a divine concept and reality. It's just humans are bringing conventions and labels to what they're perceiving. It, it, it almost feels like it's kind of begging the question. Like it's true because we are inventing the labels and then we're saying, well, yeah, that thing falls under the label that we created. And so therefore it's true. So was there almost like a circularity going on there? Mm. Well, I guess I think about it like this. You have the, the concept and you're right. It's, it's stipulated by humans. We don't need to posit some divine, like, no, seriously, guys, green is this from heaven. We don't need one of those things. We have the concept. And sometimes, though not always, we have very clearly delineated truth conditions or satisfaction conditions for that concept. For a thing to count as a dodo bird, it has to have qualities X, Y, and Z. I can't tell you what they are, but I imagine there are some qualities. And some are far less clear, like to be bald is super hard, right? That's a traditional example. of, And to be a heap is super hard too. It's not clear cut. But Well, I think it's true that we form and stipulate these conditions under which predicates are satisfied. I think that's really what we do. We only have control of half the equation. Like I have control of the how I form the concepts part of the equation. And I can stipulate a new predicate into the world sort of willy-nilly. I can just make up predicates as I go. Um, But I can't just willy-nilly change the world. So it's true that it's all... um, that one half is convention, the half that has predicates because we make those up as we go. But it's false that there's no undergirding or fundamental relation of it to reality because that part we don't, I don't get to make up whether the water was blue in ancient Greece. I get to make up the words or, or they did anyway, but not the world side of the equation. So I don't think, I don't think you need to posit some divine thing to do the work or some special sort of property to do the work. I think as long as you have persons being able to form propositions or form truth conditions for predicates, you've got what you need on the human side or the thinker side of the equation.